This is the Sterling Vineyard Sundays podcast. We are a church passionate about encountering Jesus and sharing his love with our city. To find out more about who we are, visit our website at sterlingvineyard.co.uk. Right, morning everyone. How's everyone doing? So, so I'm Ash. Um, so I'm going to be speaking today on Daniel chapter 3. So we're going through the book of Daniel um, in a series called um, Faithful Living. Um, and this week we, we've got to chapter 3. So this is all about, we might be familiar with this story, it's all about the fiery furnace. Um, so quick, quick kind of recap of you, if you this is your first week and you're kind of just picking up with the story, a quick recap of kind of where we bring ourselves up to in this story. So the book of Daniel was, is written, um, is the, well, the whole story is, is, a, is set in the time of it's 600 years before Christ. So we think the book was written maybe about 200 years before Christ, so about 400 years after the story happened. But it's set in um, kind of Israel, and then we're in this kingdom of Babylon. So the city of Babylon is, we think, is in kind of modern-day Iraq. So we can kind of imagine kind of where we are. And the whole of Daniel, the story, is all about Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were living in Jerusalem um, when the Babylonians came, besieged Jerusalem, took control, um, and they took some of the... the, um, Hebrews into exile, and Daniel and his friends um, were kind of picked out. Now these were they were probably connected to the royal courts or some nobility, but they were kind of they were highly esteemed and they were kind of taken in. So they're taken out of of their Jewish culture and they're they're challenged to continue to live their faith and identity in a completely different foreign land. So. The kind of story brings us up. So they found favor and they're brought into the king's service. So this is King Nebuchadnezzar. And then in chapter two, the kind of story last week we had was um, Nebuchadnezzar's been having some pretty bad dreams and he doesn't understand them. And he wants, um, he wants, he kind of summons all of his magicians and things and he wants them to tell him what this dream's about. And nobody can do it. And he gets quite angry and he demands to know and he, he demands them to, to tell him what, not just what his dream meant, but to tell him what his dream was in the first place. And if he doesn't, he's going to kill all of them. And none of them could do it. So he's furious. He, he, um, he sent kind of words for, to execute all of the wise men in Babylon. And one of the king's men were to go, went to go and find Daniel. And he kind of used his wisdom to kind of stop the king from killing him straight away. And he said, no, give me some time. Um, and God gives Daniel a dream. So Daniel dreams the same dream that Nebuchadnezzar's had. And then he goes back to Nebuchadnezzar and he tells him the answer to his dream. So I'm just going to recap it because it's important, picking up into chapter 3, it's important that we kind of understand what the dream was. Now, to Nebuchadnezzar's amazement, Daniel, Daniel tells him exactly what he's been dreaming and then he interprets it. So Nebuchadnezzar's been having these bad dreams, maybe been eating a bit, a bit too much cheese before bed. But he's been dreaming of um, this enormous statue um, and in his dream, this, there's this huge statue. It's got a head of gold. It's got arms of silver. It's got belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of clay. And in the dream, the story is that it says there's a rock 
which is not cut, cut by human hands. So essentially this is God's, God's hands. Throws the rock and it strikes the feet of, of clay. It smashes it and it brings the whole statue down. And Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. And after you is going to come more and more kingdoms, each one more inferior than the last. But basically God's going to bring all of this down and he's going to set up his own kingdom that will never be destroyed. Now Nebuchadnezzar is amazed and he falls down. He falls, says he falls prostrate on the ground and he essentially worships Daniel. He orders an offering and incense to be given to him. And chapter 2 ends with Nebuchadnezzar saying, Surely your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, King of kings, able to reveal mysteries. And then Nebuchadnezzar kind of, um, he appoints Daniel, places him into a high position in Babylon, gives him lots of gifts and things. So we've kind of come to the end of chapter 2 and seemingly King Nebuchadnezzar's kind of seen the error of his ways. He's, he's kind of, he's seen, wow, God, your God is amazing. And you know, we think, well, the story goes on that Nebuchadnezzar, you know, brings God's kingdom, but he doesn't. We're going to chapter three. Some time's passed. We're not quite sure how long has passed, but basically Nebuchadnezzar has now built himself a statue. Um, and if you remember the dream, this kind of statue, he's had this dream of this statue of head of gold, etc. Nebuchadnezzar orders a huge statue of, of him in his own image. It um, says it's 60 cubits high and wide, so it's about 90 feet, 30 meters. But it's a, a complete gold statue. It's an image of himself. Um, and he sets it up in the plain of Jura, which is just outside Babylon, so basically everyone can see this. And, you know, I wonder where he got this idea from. He's had this dream, and he's just remembering the good bits, isn't he? It's like kind of at work, you give someone a, some feed, a feedback sandwich, you say some nice things, you say some, you know, the thing that you're really trying to say. And Nebuchadnezzar's completely missed the point. The dream was all about, you know, all of these earthly kingdoms, God's going to bring it to an end and he's going to establish his own kingdom. And all Nebuchadnezzar's heard is, you're the head of gold, you're the, you're the best thing. And so he's, he's, he's got this huge statue um, made. So he completely missed the point. Um, and so what Nebuchadnezzar does next is he summarizes, he, he orders all of his um, advisors. It says he's got various names, satraps, governors, prefects, judges, treasurers, magistrates. So kind of all the important people in his kingdom, he orders them all together uh, for, for the dedication of the statue. So that you can, they all kind of come together. And then a herald proclaims, nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever doesn't fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. And you can kind of picture the scene. Lots of confused faces. All these people kind of frantically scrabbling around um, to do, we better do what Nebuchadnezzar has told us. And when I was kind of looking into this, some Bible scholars think that this, the writer here is mocking Nebuchadnezzar. They're basically painting, it's kind of a farcical image of all these people kind of running around, the, way, the language, the way that they repeat things lots and lots of different times. Um, you know, all, all the kind of different instruments. You can kind of imagine people saying, oh, I, I thought I heard maybe a horn, a flute, a, a, a lyre, a harp. I'm not quite sure if I heard a zither. Should, should we fall down now and worship this or not? So you kind of get a sense of Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance and all the people that he kind of had around pandering to him. 
But the story um, brings back in, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're not quite sure where Daniel's gone, but it's, it's about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they don't fall down and worship this statue. And one of, um, one of or some of the um, Nebuchadnezzar's astrologers, so I guess some of his kind of wise men that he's got around, notice that they don't bow down. And he basically goes and grasses them up to, to Nebuchadnezzar and tells them. And so Nebuchadnezzar goes to, these, to, Dan, to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and says, is it true? You know, is it true that you've not done this? He gives them a second chance and he goes through and he tells them, when you hear, or if you hear the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all the kinds of music, if you bow down, then good. But if not, then I'm going to have to throw you into the fiery furnace. And I wonder, you know, why he gave them a second chance. I think, you know, he found favor in these people. And I think other people saw that there was favor on them. And when they're, you know, disobeying Nebuchadnezzar, that doesn't look good for him. So he kind of wants them to, to come into line and bow down in front of his statue. But they respond, and they respond really, really boldly. And they say, we don't need to defend ourselves in this matter. If we're thrown into the furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. But even if he doesn't, then we want you to know we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you set up. Now, firstly, they know who God is. They know that he's a God who rescues. You know, they say, if we're thrown in, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. So they know exactly who God is and what he's capable of doing. But they also know that, you know, realistically, that might not happen. Um, but even still, you know, they had integrity to their God and to live their life without that compromise. And you can imagine, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is not too happy with this. He, he's livid. He orders, it says he orders the furnace to be heated up seven times hotter and then he orders soldiers to tie them up and throw them into the furnace. And it says it was so hot that when the, the soldiers brought it and opened the furnace, that they were instantly killed. But what about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? So they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And it says that Nebuchadnezzar leaps with amazement. He says, wasn't there three men that were thrown in? Look, I see four unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of God's. So he pulls them out. They all gather around them and they see that the three are completely unharmed. It says not a hair on their head was singed. So chapter three, that's kind of brings to the end. And we get to the end of chapter three and Nebuchadnezzar's response is, is kind of like what it was at the end of chapter two. Seemingly, he, he sees the light again and he says, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who sent his angel to rescue his servants. They trusted in him um, and, and they defied the king's commands and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. So, so what can we take from this story? I think firstly, unquestionably, you know, it's a story of no compromise. There was no question from either of the three that they were going to go in there. They didn't, didn't even question it. Um, and it comes from, you know, in their Jewish culture, in their Jewish faith, you know, the, the Ten Commandments that were given were very, very well known to them, as were all the kind of other laws that they would have obeyed. But the, the Ten Commandments starts the first two, you shall have no other gods before me, 
And secondly, you shall not make an image and bow down and worship it. So, you know, there's, there's no question. It's not like they've got to go to the scripture and, and kind of test it and weigh it up and think, is this something we should be doing or, or not? And it's completely black and white. This is not a gray issue to them. To be people of faith um, meant that they knew that they couldn't do it. And I guess when we kind of read this, it can be easy to dismiss this kind of idea of um, idols and that we don't maybe have a problem with it. We certainly don't. We're not asked to bow down to statues and things. But um, so N.T. Wright, who's a well-known theologian, he talks about this issue in, his, in one of his books, which is called Surprised by Scripture. And he says, idolatry is very much alive and well in our culture. So he says, these other gods these idols, they're not strangers in the ancient world. They, we, they were known really well. And he calls, calls a few of them out. So they're the gods of Mars, Mammon, and Aphrodite. They're the gods of war, wealth, and erotic love, or money, sex, and power. And in the ancient world, in the Roman world, you know, they, they made temples, the Babylonians, they made temples to them. They gave them kind of images and icons, and we've lost those today. But the kind of those idols are still very, very much part of our cultures. And just to, I guess, just to pick money as one example, you know, how much of our lives do we kind of is wrapped up? How much of our status or kind of self identity is kind of wrapped up in what we do as our jobs? When we meet somebody for the first time, we often ask them, "What do you do?" We want to know what's kind of your status. Materialism. The need to have so much stuff. Maybe it's just the feeling of like being in uh, insecurity or needing to be in control. I need to have enough money so I can do this. There's so much of this kind of insidious stuff that is can creep in to our culture. And you know, why, so why is idol worship such a problem? And I, again, it's, this is all from N.T. Wright stuff, which is is really good. He says there's two real problems with idol worship. Firstly. He says, those who worship them become like them. So the things that we worship, we become like. And secondly, worshipping them demands sacrifices. There's compromises. And God demands our focus on him. You know, that's why it was his first two commandments. You should put nothing before me. He demands our focus on him, not because... He's, uh, he's insecure, not because he's kind of got this big ego and he, he, he demands that we just worship him all the time. It's because he desires for you to become more like him. You know, when, when we worship him, we become more like him. And the sacrifices of his worship don't lead to destruction or compromise like so many of these other things. They lead to life. So this is a good thing. This is a good gift that God's giving us. So firstly, it's a story of no compromise. You know, we don't want to compromise. God doesn't want us to compromise because he's got good things for us. He desires good things for you. Secondly, this is a story about persecution. So these are pretty big issues and subjects that are coming up. So thinking about persecution, in reality today, you know, we as Christians living as Christians in the UK, we face very, very few barriers to living and practicing our faith. 
we may, you know, we may feel that we come across um, persecution from time to time, but, but you know, we, we really don't, considering, you know, in comparison to so many Christians that lived early church, other people around the world. Just looking at, um, on the Open Doors, they're a, a global kind of charity that works supporting persecuted Christians. They say that there's 360 million Christians around the world that live under the threat of persecution. That's one in seven people. So there's, you know, countries that have got really strict, uh, Islamic countries with really strict Sharia law make it illegal to practice any other faith other than Islam. Not just um, other uh, countries with other faiths, but say in China, while it's no longer technically illegal to be Christian, uh, there's really tight surveillance and control. So churches are required to have a permit. There's a real crackdown on uh, the internet and social media, it's difficult, it's hard to be, it's hard to practice. In Iran, just to personalize it, you know, we, we can name numbers, big numbers, but real people, just to give one example. There's, um, some, in Iran, two Christians, Victor, Bet Tamaz, and his wife. Um, they face 45 years imprisonment for practicing their faith, including attending Christi Christmas gatherings and organizing house churches. So there's people around the world living in persecution. And I think, you know, it's, it's very easy just to look at it from the point of view of Christians. There are, there are millions of people living around the world under persecution. Um, Amnesty International estimate there's a million uh, Uyghur Muslims being held in northwest China in detention camps because of their faith. The Chinese government say that they're, they're kind of education camps, that they're transforming them through uh, transformation centers um, but people are sent there by force um, and there's some real concerns around torture um, happening happening there you know so there's people living around the world uh, facing re very real persecution so what are we called to do well we're called to pray whether for the Christians or for the Muslims uh, or anyone else this is not God's will. We're called to stand against it as well. So some real big issues. And, but the third thing, and I think, you know, which addresses those, and it's the answer to some of that, is that this is a story about Jesus. This, not just this story, uh, or Daniel, but the entire scripture. It points us to Jesus. So he, Jesus, I think, is right. He's front and center in this story when they're thrown into the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar sees four. There was a fourth person. He says he was like the sons of God. He says he calls him an angel. I like to think this is Jesus. He's in it. He's in it with them. He's experiencing it with them. He goes before them. We'll keep going in Daniel. You know, it becomes um, quite interesting once you get past the, the kind of first few chapters and it. it's like prophetic. It's all about the coming of Jesus. It's all about the coming of Jesus' kingdom. The dream that Nebuchadnezzar had was all about the coming of God's kingdom, which we found when Jesus came. So Daniel is a story about the coming of Jesus. It's about God's faithfulness as much as it is about these people's faithfulness. You know, the scripture tells us that um, you know, when we're faithless, he is faithful. God is our faith. He's our faithfulness. Um. And that's what we need to hold on to. So I just felt, you know, there's some big things in here, but it's all about Jesus. I love that new song, and maybe we could do that again in a minute. 
because we want to speak the name of Jesus into some of this stuff. You know, we don't, uh, we're not under threat of being thrown into a fiery furnace, but we may be feeling like we have those things in our life, issues that we face. It could be some bigger, deeper issues that we find that we're not maybe giving God everything, that there are some things that we're kind of um, bowing down to, that we're choosing to worship instead of him, that we're seeing those, you know, the fruits of those things affecting our life. Jesus says there's another way, you know, there's freedom. He's left nothing undone. Uh, there's nothing undone on the cross. It's all, you know, he said it's finished. He's made a way. The new kingdom has been started. The new creation story is available to us. And God doesn't want us to live in persecution. He doesn't want us to live in idolatry or being trapped in some of those things. He wants to give us freedom. He wants to give us life. And he wants to walk that with us. So that's kind of what I had to say. Um, and I just think we should just bring that before God. You know, there's, there's definitely some individual personal things, but there's definitely a corporate response. You know, we want to be a people that see Jesus. You know, I desire, as Paul said, I desire to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. That's what we want to be as a people. You know, we, we want to desire to know Jesus, to see Jesus in every situation, to see the possibilities of what he can do and what he can bring. So maybe we could stand. Maybe would you mind doing this? this um, we're going to sing that last song again. Yeah. Hmm. So, Father, I just want to thank you that you made a way. You made a way with Jesus. God, I thank you that you're the God who rescues. You're the God who saves. We see that right through scripture. As we turn away, God, you turn to us. You provide a way. You've made a way. And so, God, we just invite you this morning. We invite you afresh into our lives, into each of these issues, challenges that we see before us God we thank you that you're with us we thank you that's your promise God that you're with us but God we want to pray and see uh, your power in releasing freedom in some of these areas in our lives Lord God we want to become more like you So, Father, we just say we love you. We invite you again.
Yeah, we want to speak the name of Jesus over every one of us. Every one of our lives, Lord. And just sharing a bit of a, a kind of personal story as well. I've had a couple of um, couple of kind of relationships where things haven't been quite right. Um, and it's kind of caused some distance. And in both situations this year, I've had the opportunity to reconnect um, and see reconciliation. And so I, I want to pray that as well. You know, I've also got other relationships and areas in my life where I really need and believe that there will be reconciliation. And so I just want to pray that over us again as well today, Lord, that there would be a spirit of reconciliation that we would see ourselves walking in, Lord. Yeah, family members where relationships have been ripped and torn up. God, I just pray you'd breathe and speak your life back into them. Thanks for listening to the Sterling Vineyard Sundays podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, please visit our website at sterlingvineyard.co.uk or find us on social media at Sterling Vineyard Church.